Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. In Mark's gospel, the locations of Jesus' ministry and miracles have shifted. Rather than being in the area around the Sea of Galilee and the places of Capernaum where um, where, where, where Jews who lived were, were there and to minister to, he has gone out into Gentile area in the northern part. He's up in the area around Caesarea Philippi. It's an area that would have had a lot of religious influence and signs. This was the place where the ancient Canaanites had gone to worship Baal, one of the tribal gods of the land in which Israel did battle with. There's this really great story in which the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal are doing battle with each other and, and, and Elijah is trying to prove to them that, 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 that God is so much bigger than, than Baal and, and, and he's trying to you know, get them to recreate the miracle that he um, did and, 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 the, and, and the, the people who worship Baal couldn't do it and, and so Elijah starts trash-talking them. Um, much like I was trash-talking Texas as they lost Arkansas last night. My um, apologies to any Longhorn fans. And, and, and he says, well, maybe your God went to go take on a bathroom break, right? I mean, I mean this is an area where, where Israelites and the people who had worshipped Baal, they had conflicted with one another. There was also a place where the Greeks had built a, a, a temple to Pan, this kind of Greek god of fertility. Some have noted that the word pan kind of uh, doesn't, kind of, it does mean all. One of the early church fathers, Eusebius, is, notes that, that pan meaning all in some way says that when pan dies, pan is the only Greek god um, who ever dies in their stories, was a way of talking about how Jesus put an end to all other religious deities because he is the full revelation of God. The Romans would have built a statue to Caesar Augustus. And in their cosmology, the Caesar, the emperor, was a god. So in the midst of this cacophony of religious influences and identities and temples and statues, Jesus cuts to the matter in asking those who follow him, who do you say that I am? Now, before I get to that answer, I want to step back for a moment and talk about how we as a society talk about cause and effect. Much of our world assumes that when you do good, good things will happen to you, and when you do bad things, bad things are a natural consequence. This is even baked into many of the moral stories that we tell ourselves. But what is heartbreaking is, is that Jesus reveals in this exchange with Peter and his disciples that goodness does not protect you from pain. It is like Ruby Sue exasperation in Christmas Vacation when she says to her, uh, to her uncle Clark, I did everything right last year and I still didn't get anything. 
There's something in our very heart that we know that is unfair when, good, when bad things happen to good people. We struggle with it. What kind of God would allow this to happen, we ask. As Barbara Brown Taylor notes that Jesus is as good as good can get, and he still suffers. Jesus is pretty blunt when his public teaching that suffering and death was going to be a part of his story and ministry. Jesus suffers physically, emotionally. I mean, I don't know if you all have ever been betrayed or denied by a friend, but imagine Peter, the one on whom um, he, he says, upon this I'm going to build my church, later sits there and goes, Jesus, never heard of him. Don't know who you're talking about. And the spiritual suffering that Jesus exhibits. He's on the cross and he cries out to the God that he called Father, that he called Abba, that he called Daddy. He cries out and says, God, why are you doing this to me? Any of us who have ever suffered physically, emotionally, or spiritually, we have a God that resonates with those experiences. Jesus tells his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Crosses were not unusual in Jesus' days. Romans used crucifixion throughout the empire to establish fear and control. This is how in an ancient world, without modern technology, you could control almost the entire world. Crosses would have lined the roads and people would have been familiar with it. It is sort of like in the deep south in the 1950s how nooses and burning crosses were used to elicit fear and control. But Jesus in using this image says to his disciples something really um, crazy. He says, don't be afraid. Take up your cross and follow me. You know, Jesus, that's all good and well, but I have suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and it's not fun. Where do we get to the good stuff? It's enough to make me want to go and watch Joel Osteen on a loop. Now, I don't believe that we have to go out and there and get ourselves killed in order to follow Jesus. There are some who do. We call them martyrs. We call them witnesses. Rather, I think that Jesus is telling his disciples that it is okay to pick up the broken and wretched parts of our life. That it's okay to stop pretending like everything is okay. Now, this would have astounded all those other gods that they're in the midst of. This would have astounded the, the, the god of Baal. The Greek gods would not have understood this advice. Caesar Augustus certainly would have said this is ridiculous. The empire brings peace. And this is surely how, G how Peter takes it. G Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, what are you out of your mind? Why are you talking about this? No one's going to want to follow us. Jesus literally turns his back upon Peter 
And he turns to the disciples and he warns them, don't set your mind on human things. Set your mind upon divine things. I think about in modern times, if he was speaking to our culture and to our time, he would invite us to think about what it means to follow God. To stop worrying so much about whether we have power or not. Whether our tribe or our group is winning or not. And certainly, maybe not to worry so much about whether we are strong or not. Or not. In AA, they say that your life is unmanageable and you don't return to sanity by grasping at more control, but by giving up control. The cross is something that you don't have to go out and find. Crosses find you, right? We've all suffered. We've all had a cross in our life. Maybe this morning you're carrying one with you. And the thing is, is we don't have to be ashamed of those things. Because we all have them. Some of us are better at masking it than others, and some of us find great pleasure in putting them out on social media for all to see. But we have a God who meets people in their weakness, not in their strength. We have a God who, when he chose disciples, did not go get the A++ students from the rabbi school. He found the ones who had flunked out and were forced to fish to live. We have a God who saves people from themselves. Rescue is the main thrust of the Bible, and it's at the heart of the Christian gospel. But the sad part of this, as John Saul says, is that it's a catch-22, that the only way you can find God is if you desperately need him, and it stands in stark contrast to the widespread, even dominant notion in today's world and in many churches that find such notions of desperately needing God and not able to save ourselves as almost heresy. The great mystics know that pain is the starting point of our growth. It is the point in which we realize that we need healing the most. And if we deny those things and we tell different stories, we won't be healed. One of my favorite authors is Jonathan Hyde, and Jonathan uh, works on moral psychology, how it is that people come to make decisions. And he shares this story about one morning, he was eating a bowl of cereal, and he goes and he sets the bowl of cereal down on the counter, and sometime later he goes and the dog comes out and wants to go outside, so he goes and he takes the dog for a walk to go to the bathroom. His wife comes in and she's exasperated at him. <sighs> How many times have I told you, don't put the bowl where I have to go and make the baby's food? Now, Jonathan knew what was coming, and so he says, well, well, I was, I was eating the bowl, and then the dog came in, and I didn't want the dog to go to the bathroom in the house, so I set it down, ran out to go do it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And he says upon reflection, he goes, none of that was true. I knew that my wife would resonate with the story of, yes, we have this elderly dog who pees on the carpet all the time, and so she would appreciate me getting it out of the house. 
But what I wanted to do was avoid my own shame that I had done something that we had agreed upon that was just part of living life together. And so it's sort of owning our stuff is the place where we can begin to grow spiritually. And Jesus says, don't be afraid to go to those places. Brene Brown, who I just think is um, just an amazing writer, author, and someone we should probably soak those words that she says, says that owning our story can be hard, but it's not nearly, she says, as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy. The experiences that make us most vulnerable, but only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of light. Amen.